host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a leading marketing agency for behavioral health and addiction treatment providers. Today, we're speaking with Jamie Vink, the CEO or currently the CEO of Recovery Ways, formerly of Sierra Tucson and Acadia. We are going to be speaking about intentionality in building out and scaling quality successful programs. But before we hear from her, I want to hear from our sponsors, ERP Health. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit erphealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. So I was excited to bring Jamie on today. We've had some conversations in the past around a surprisingly unique model. I wouldn't say it should be unique, but it is unique in the space. And one of the things that Recovery Ways is doing under Jamie's leadership is they are working with intentionality in terms of the programs that they're building out, but also the locations that they're expanding to. So rather than going in somewhere and then trying to deliver programming, they're building the programming based on the needs of the community, based on the needs of the payers, and they're finding that out before they build that programming. And then they're investing in the programming build before they market the services. And so in our experience, a lot of providers want to market the services first and then kind of build the plane as they're flying it. Recovery Ways has taken a more strategic approach, and then they've designed and tailored their programs to some very strategic partnerships with unions, the FAA, other high-profile organizations that have pretty extensive requirements for the members or the patients that they're sending. And then the other smart thing that they've really done is partnered with the payers in a similar respect. So instead of looking at market rates or just choosing a location based on you know, some site selection criteria, they're forming a relationship with the pairs and saying, hey, here's what we're good at. Here's what we're able to do. Where do you need those kinds of services? Or what kind of services are needed in some areas that you don't have coverage or you don't have the services that you're looking for? How can we partner and help you with that? Very smart, very strategic. And so Jamie talks through her experience at Sierra Tucson, at Acadia, and then now with Recovery Ways under the private equity ownership. And it's just been a very interesting experience to hear all about her leadership and her experience with those different programs and private equity, large publicly traded companies, nonprofits. So with that, let's jump in. Hey, Jamie, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Recovery Ways? Sure. Thanks, Nick, first of all, for giving me the opportunity to be here and talk about Recovery Ways and our industry and what's going on. Um, so I am from Detroit, Michigan. 
And I spent the first 10 years of my career at Chrysler in Detroit as part of a human resources and labor relations training and development program. I studied um, employment relations and labor relations in both undergraduate and graduate and then moved to what is now T-Mobile, the wireless industry, with a startup company called OmniPoint. And we were living in New Jersey at the time. And I was there for a number of years. And what ended up happening is that I really became interested in human behavior. And while my trajectory was more in the compensation, sales comp, executive comp, I was fascinated with the why people did what they did and how we could really um, handle, we could really modify systems in order to change behavior. And so when the opportunity came up, we had moved to Arizona where we currently live and I went back to school and became a um became a licensed professional counselor, or that was the the masters that I chose. Um, began my independent licensure. And what was immediately apparent is that if there was a clinician who loved spreadsheets and loved the business side of things, we were, I was immediately put on a, uh, on a leadership trajectory. And I think I was offered a job as a clinical director before I was even independently licensed. And so it was interesting in addiction treatment that the field, it was early, it was 2004, 2005, and the field sort of found me. I ended up working at Journey Healing Centers, the Sundance Center, and was with them for years from the time they started it until the time that they sold to Elements. And at that point, I was a clinical director and then was recruited to go down to Sierra Tucson as their chief clinical officer. And I spent a number of years there at Sierra Tucson and once again moved from clinical leadership to operations leadership and eventually was offered to take over the CEO slot and then was also given the Southern California properties. Um, from there, I was recruited by, Recover by Chicago Pacific Founders, who is the, the owner of Recovery Ways of private equity firm in Chicago and San Francisco. And what was appealing to me about Recovery Ways is that they were, first of all, going to expand and grow both organically and through acquisition. And they wanted me to come in and lead that initiative. Recovery Ways already had a lot of really solid in-network contracts and I was intrigued with the idea because I'd spent so much of my time on the on the self-pay out of network side. I really wanted to get into a program and design high quality, high value, high quality with expanded access to care. And so I joined Recovery Ways in July of 2020, just three years ago. And we immediately stood up a primary mental health program just expanded that by 10 beds. So we're 128 beds in Salt Lake City. And we created the Recovery Ways family of programs and now have programs in Austin, Houston, two in Spokane, one in north of Seattle, and two programs in Idaho. So it's been a busy three years. So that's a bit about Recovery Ways. And again, both primary mental health substance use disorder co-occurring 
and primarily in network. That's quite the journey. It mirrors my path a little bit where I just came from a variety of backgrounds before I found my way to behavioral health. And if anyone's ever read the book Range by David Epstein, it's phenomenal. It's a very fascinating account of how that's actually the norm for a lot of highly successful people, their ability to meld their experiences from different career paths or different series of interests helps build creativity and problem solving skills mm-hmm. that people that are narrowly focused on a single space are not always as good at seeing. So interesting, interesting journey there. So I want to dig into a little bit about the different experiences you've had. So you've been in the field for quite a a long time. And then at the same time, you've had the chance to see so many different models. You've been at a single facility, you were at the ups and downs with elements and that whole uh, moment in time. And then you've had your opportunity with Acadia, which is a massive, right? One of the largest providers in the world. And then now Recovery Ways, which is private equity backed. Can you just talk a little bit about your experience in those different working environments and what you what you pulled away from them in terms of what worked or what different didn't work with the different models? Of course. So my time with Journey Healing Centers was before the elements acquisition. So it was interesting because the Journey Healing Centers was founded and by a couple, um, Josh and Lisa Lannon, and they have since founded Warrior's Heart. And that was my time with them where I basically had every seat in the house and it was owned independently by a family, really. And then from there going to, it was CRC at the time when I joined Sierra Tucson and then Acadia. And Acadia was actually my third publicly traded company because I'd had Chrysler and, um, T-Mobile Omnipoint when I was there. And so it was interesting. Part of me felt like it was going home because I was very comfortable in that large um, publicly traded bureaucratic, if you will, corporate structure. And what it's interesting now going to private equity, what I find is that the differences in the, in the, in the publicly traded where they are really driven by financial markets and our reporting was monthly and our the the things that were focused on the performance indicators if you will there was a lot of immediate focus on that and so when i was in the wireless industry it was how many subscribers do we have today in the automotive industry how many cars are we producing and selling today and in behavioral health it was what's our census today and again we reported month we reported live monthly with daily and weekly calls on what's going on in this moment that was very comfortable for me i was used to it on the private equity side it's interesting because we report quarterly I report to a board of directors and they don't really want to hear so much about things on a monthly basis. They want to hear about it in the quarter. The trends will even out. And most importantly, they want to know what I did about it in order to um, to address any of the things that were going on. Less focus on information gathering, less focus on collaboration. It's more about you saw the let, you saw the trend, you pulled the lever. Where are we now? 
having said that, you know, that focus, immediate focus on the performance indicator is ingrained in me. It's the first thing I look at every day. What's the census in every location? That's not a bad thing. It's something that I'm very glad that I've learned, but I've had to learn a different way to, to respond and to act in the now, in the immediate, and certainly a different way of reporting things. So this is some interesting reflections because you're right, the different contexts in which you are working has different requirements from a reporting standpoint, from an accountability standpoint, and just from a, a results standpoint. When you step back and you look at it, do you see pros and cons to those different styles? Because like if we look at Acadia, for example, this is actually pretty fresh for me because I was just looking at it. But I mean, Acadia, their evaluation really hasn't improved in the past, I think it was like six, seven years. It's flat. And then if you look at their, their net income, it's it's pretty much flat in the same time frame. So they haven't had improvement at all. And I'm wondering if that has anything to do with that approach to the business or what are your thoughts in terms of how valuable those reporting cycles and accountability cycles are in terms of ability to achieve EBITDA growth? Well, I can only speak to the facility or facilities that for which I was responsible. And we had enormous growth in EBITDA during the time that I was there. And we were very, very well funded and resourced in order to achieve that EBITDA. And so from where I was sitting in the flagship, it was a very different story than the rest of Acadia. What I got from my time there was a tremendous discipline in terms of reporting, in terms of information gathering and prioritization that has served me well in an environment where it's faster, it's more nimble, and it's also all up to me. There's no, there's no department that I can call, hey, you know, I, I've had a bad month in digital admissions. What are we going to do? It's on me now to, you know, if, if I have to change the digital vendor, I change the digital vendor. And so I'm very grateful that I had those years of the discipline in terms of reporting and all of the infrastructure that came with being in a large company. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think in our end, because we work with a pretty decent amount of private equity, we, we do have one public client, and they, they do have a very different way of operating. And I think there are definitely pros and cons to it. The, the public companies tend to get very bureaucratic. It becomes yes. more about systems and processes and reporting. And, and that almost takes over that institutional imperative. It can be a hindrance as well as a support, whereas the private equity are absolutely really focused on growth and impatience around growth, which is not, not necessarily bad, but definitely in different environments to work within and in different environments in, in terms of how you interact with the leadership teams. So you were, I think, one of the things that you had mentioned on a previous call related to actually this is your strategy and how you're looking at growing recovery ways. And if we look over the past five years or so, most providers have shifted to local markets. Mm-hmm. And there's very few providers that are still doing the fly-in model that was so common, you know, 10 years ago. And so you've got up to 50% of your patients are still doing flying from out of state, but it's a very different model than the 
what most people probably would have in their heads of a destination treatment model. So you've actually built specific partnerships with unions, with the FAA. Can you talk a little bit about your model and why Recovery Ways went that direction? Of course. And, you know, the there were these relationships existed when prior to my arrival at Recovery Ways. We have grown and enhanced them and expanded them. And when you think about the flyaway model, my mind immediately goes to a luxury program, a destination, those sort of things where people are focused on amenities. Our program is, as I mentioned earlier, high value, high quality. And what we've been able to do with our partners is to have them understand that the cultural competence that exists in safe for safety sensitive positions is something that is worth the travel. It's worth sending someone from Chicago, from New Jersey, in order to come to Recovery Ways and to really receive the high value and culturally competent treatment. The other piece of that is that, you know, when we look at professional referral sources and, you know, the therapists, the docs, those kinds of things in the various markets, they have so many choices. And so I believe that it would be just, it's not a good use of our time to market to them. We do some, but to just say, okay, that's going to be our target market. And we're going to count on them to really send their patients across state lines to have a plane flight, those sorts of things. That's not going to work with our model. And so what we did was to really build up our capabilities and our value in terms of understanding what these folks need, our partnerships. What does it mean to be culturally competent for a safety sensitive family, not just the not just the family, not just the employee, but for the whole family, all of their loved ones, and what that looks like. That also involves a, a lot of paperwork and developing an expertise and having the resources to be able to fulfill the requirements needed in order to have these strong partnerships. And so part of our strategy was to really look and say, where are we going to invest our marginal dollars? And we've done that with our case management teams and with our outreach teams. So we're able to really set these partners up for success with their experience with us. And again, that I know I keep using the term cultural competence, but being able to live in the world of their paperwork requirements, that's part of the cultural comp competence. I think it's such a smart strategy. It's one of the main reasons I was really interested in having you come on the show and share a little bit about it. Because what most providers do is they open up a, a faith-based program or a veterans program or a first responders program. Like those are the ones we get constantly these days. But there's no clear strategy behind it. It's just, as you said, hey, we're open to veterans now. Where can we talk to some veterans or people that might send us veterans? Where you took a different route or Recovery Ways took a different route and said, let's find the right organizations to partner with. And then you built systems and structures around the paperwork requirements, the communication requirements, the aftercare requirements, which are pretty significant with healthcare and pilots and such. And then also, I would imagine that you're also building clinical competencies with those specific groups. I mean, is that accurate? 
That's exactly right. And, you know, with our outreach team, they're an important part of it too. They're an integral part of our treatment team. And they've got to be involved in the decision-making and the communication at every step of the way. And that's something that's not always possible in a lot of organizations where I've worked. That's been a challenge. And at Recovery Ways, we've really been able to thread that needle where our outreach team is a solid part of our treatment team. And that's an important piece of these partnerships too. Something else that we did during COVID, and this was, you know, one of the greatest gifts of my professional life is that we were actually able to go into airports and we were able to talk with folks that were really struggling. You know, it was really hard to be a flight attendant and to be a ticket taker in 2021. And they were struggling and their loved ones were struggling. And so to be able to go in and to listen and to understand what their challenges were and to be able to do mental health education and to be able to be a partner in that way, that was a huge piece of this too. And it's really solidified the bonds that we have in a lot of these places. I love that. It's so impressive. (laughs) And I talked to providers about it on occasion. You know, when was the last time you went and talked to your referral sources and asked what they need, you know, rather than yeah. saying, hey, send us referrals, what do they need from you? How can you help them better? And especially when you're dealing with these big organizations and partnerships. But I think also, like you're talking about here, yeah, you've got partnerships with the FAA or maybe potential unions at an airline, but going and talking to those groups and saying, well, as a potential patient, you know, as someone that's a stewardess, as someone that's a pilot, what do you need from treatment? I love that approach. Mm-hmm. Can you, I would wonder if you could be able to share maybe just one or two interesting things that you learned when doing that outreach. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I'll talk about, well, specifically something that I learned is that, and this is um, with one of our union partners, is that one of them had lost eight employees in the six months prior to alcohol-related deaths. Wow. And it was, they were visiting us in Utah, and I had just gotten the call that one of my friends, I actually went to my senior prom with him. He had just died of an alcohol-related death. Completely shocked everyone, really high-functioning, fantastic human being died as a result of alcohol consumption. And so we partnered up and we did education, training, videos so that people could watch them in their own home about the dangers of alcohol use. And so that was something that was penetrating these organizations. And once someone found out, yeah, we're doing this, we're talking about this, they say, yeah, me too. I want to see the video. I want to use the video where, Jamie, I want you to come on and talk from a Zoom perspective, you know, to our teams, to our peers, all of the, you know, depending on what the structure is of our partner organizations. But alcohol is one case where everyone is interested in talking about it. Suicide is another one. And that those are things that people really, really want to talk about, not just as it impacts their employees, but as it impacts their family members and ultimately their organizations. So those have been huge lessons learned for us. 
That's such a great example. We always say lead with value. Mm-hmm. And so many providers fail to do that a lot of the time. And when we do ride-alongs with business development teams, they do a lot of what we call gripping grins or donut drops, where they come in, they say hi, they drop off some donuts or some pens or whatever it is, maybe shake a hand or two, and then they're out the door. And my question always is, well, what value did you provide to that individual or that organization that's going to build up their trust in you and seeing you as, as a source of support for their patients. Whereas what you're doing here is it's an investment. It's going to cost you money in terms of labor, in terms of time and creation. And there's not necessarily an immediate return on that. But I'm sure you can speak to the fact that, yeah, you get not just really positive feedback. You're not just providing value to an organization and a community, but it is obviously impacting the bottom line eventually, where because of that value that provided, more patients are going to seek care with recovery ways rather than another provider. Absolutely. And, you know, our goal at the end of the day is to really expand access to care. And if we touch someone when we're out in the field, if we say something that resonates, that they can take it home and tell their wife, their daughter, and as long as that person gets help, we're good. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we operate the same way from a marketing philosophy standpoint is 99% of the people that see a particular ad campaign are not in need of full-on services or maybe not ready for them, but you still add value to that community because you provide great information, you inspire them, you help them. And that comes back. It comes back when they're ready for help. It comes back in terms of word of mouth and referrals. So we're, we're really kind of getting to the marketing side of things here. As you're looking at the ways that you have shaped some of Recovery Ways strategy around these larger organizations, how have you structured that from an outreach standpoint? Or what would you say that you're doing differently at Recovery Ways than what you had potentially seen at other other positions you've had with other providers and their business development or outreach teams? Well, this is a great, you know, a case in point in With Acadia, we had a treatment placement specialist team that was world-class. They did not report to me. And so now I've had to build out our own team. And so it's a bit different. And what we have found, and I'll be honest, Nick, you know, not everything we've tried has worked. It's tricky. But where we have landed is that to have these experts and have these experts that are part of these huge accounts. So they're as much of part of the huge account as they are of recovery ways. And so they're the first person that that comes to mind when an employee is struggling. We have invested in getting the right people in those chairs and keeping them in those chairs because we all know it's competitive out there and really, really good reps are courted all the time. Yeah, And so we've invested and we have them really assigned by, yes, they're assigned by geography, but also by strategic account and relationship. And I know you and I had talked a bit about our admissions team and the way that we found that to be effective is to structure, to partner the outreach folks with an admissions rep who understands their, um, the goals of that large partner and that they're able to be available when a family is on the line and they need and they need help. 
And then we can also coordinate, you know, going to pick the person up, whatever needs to happen. Admissions is the right arm of our outreach team, who's also, who's often deeply, deeply rooted in that, in that account, in that community. It's an interesting approach. And I, I find a lot of value in it. You can have that match there, but I think a lot of providers struggle at scale with it. If I've got a 50-person admissions team in the call center, and we want to try and get the the FAA to the right admissions rep, because they know the pieces of paperwork they require, they know the questions that they have to ask. And so there's a lot of value in having just specific knowledge around that partnership. But when you have a thousand calls coming in in a week, how are you dealing with that? So just kind of curious, I'm from like a scalability standpoint, how have you seen that play out in terms of managing the ability for the team to take and own specific relationships? So the way that it, it works is that things funnel through the outreach rep. And so the outreach rep is the team captain, if you will. And then they have their squad, they've got their admissions rep, they've got their case management person, they've got their admin that can support the the paperwork flow. And so everything goes through that account outreach person. Now we have people calling us directly, definitely. And then that's where we take those calls and they're handled as far as we can with admissions. And then if they need to go to the account specialist, then we will buck them back there for additional support. Got it. That's what I was just going to ask. So do you have a separate kind of general call team? And then you've got these dedicated reps that are assigned to specific accounts and they're more or less waiting for calls or interactions there rather than being part of the general pool. Is that accurate? That's right. Yes. So you've got this part of your strategy is the focus on larger organizations, which is clearly working really well for you. And I think really smart, something that most providers don't do. And then another part of your strategy is expansion in relationships with the payers. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. When Recovery Ways decided, you know, the the expansion, and as I mentioned, it was organic and also by acquisition. And the first step that was taken is they went to the payers and said, where's your treatment vacuums? Where do you need us? And so they gave us areas and that's where we focused our acquisition strategy. It's been interesting because, you know, and I was on the due diligence team, obviously, and spent a lot of time vetting these these programs to be sure that they're a good fit from both of our standpoints, because as we all know, you know, oftentimes the acquisition itself is the easy part. And are we actually going to be able to integrate this and make it part of the whole? And so as we went through that process, we checked back in with the payers. Okay, here's what we're finding. Um, Here's Here's their current um, standing in terms of in-network contracts. Are you good to go with expanding the in-network? Because as we know, sometimes the payers are interested in additional providers in a geographic area. So we would test that with the payers. And then we would also test the service lines. And that's where we've really stretched because we obviously, you know, we, as every company, we have a clinical roadmap and these are things that we provide in each location. But then, you know, I'll pick on our Idaho um, programs. 
They really need kids there. They really, really need support for kiddos and families. And so in our Boise location and Nampa location, we treat children. We do in-home case management. We do peer support. Not exactly our core services, but we have been able to to expand them based on the needs of the community. We also take Medicaid there. So those are things that the payers have wanted us to do in their specific locations and we've done it. So it goes beyond just acquiring a property, acquiring a program, standing up a de novo. It, it is what does the population in that deserve? What do they need? It's such a great strategy. I mean, so many providers or growth strategy was for a long time, where can we get the best rates? And they would just try to acquire or build a facility somewhere where they thought they could make more based on whatever the average payment reimbursements were in that state or that area. And it hasn't worked, right? We've seen it consistently fail over and over again. At the end of the day, the payers, if you're not gonna call them your friends, they're at least your partner. And they want to partner. I mean, they want to partner with, I've talked about this on other episodes. They're looking to partner with larger providers that can help more of their members. I mean, what they don't want to do is have 15 little rinky-dink contracts with 15 to 30 bed facilities all over the place. They would rather have one large contract with one large provider that covers as many members as they're possible that they know and trust are going to get results for their members. And so your approach in saying, hey, what do you guys need? And then adapting your systems, your operations, the care you're delivering to meet the needs in those communities is, I would say it's common sense, but in this field, it's it's almost a little bit of genius because it's just so rare. Uh, so how has it worked out so far? What have you seen the results of that strategy being? Well, it's been interesting. And as I mentioned about the, the integration, you know, that has been um, a real learning opportunity as well. And so some of our programs that we've acquired, you know, it's interesting. Most of them have been, and I believe you and I chatted about this, they were clinician owned. Yeah. And so that has been in our, our model with Chicago Pacific is that the owner maintains at least a 20% ownership stake in the enterprise and stays on as the executive director, CEO. And so these are folks that I work very, very closely with. And that has been just fantastic. And I've really gained a lot of knowledge and a lot of um, just some fantastic new colleagues as we integrate and take their dreams, their legacy, their life work, life work to the next level. And so it's been a process. Um, I'm not going to say that every one of our acquisitions has been an overwhelming success. Um, you know, there have been one or two that we've needed to pivot and we've needed to change up our strategy a bit. We've needed to consolidate, but those are things that we have done. We've done them quickly. We have done them with intention. And at this point, everything is really on track. And some of them are, you know, beyond our wildest dreams in terms of success. Those are the ones where, again, that relationship, that clinical bond, if you will, with that owner and that shared vision of being part of a whole and what that looks like 
and what it means to integrate. Yeah, we have to integrate the EHR. We have to integrate the billing system, but we also have to really be on the same page in terms of what it looks like to be part of a whole and to grow together. And that's really been, that's been a great opportunity. You know, we have Omega in Austin and that was Dr. Nick Carderas. He's one of the nation's leading experts in tech and screen addiction. And that was one of our, um, it was probably middle of the way through in our acquisition strategy. And so when, since he's come on board, he's trained every clinician in the family of programs in tech and screen addiction. So having his expertise has been invaluable. And we have grown that Austin operation um, grown the the housing. We've expanded the the facility by three thousand square feet, and so we have really taken an aggressive stand there. And he has just been such a fantastic partner. We're very lucky to have him. So that's an example of one strategy that has just really been successful. So following the threads of that discussion, you've got clinical clinical quality and clinical approaches front and center in terms of the growth and acquisition strategy, which is, again, kind of surprisingly unique in the space. When we're working with private equity, their focus tends to be more on hard numbers. You know, it's cost per acquisition, it's reimbursement rates, it's average length of stay. And one of the reasons I always point out for that is because it's hard to understand what clinical quality means. Mm -hmm. We're not doing patient outcomes tracking most of the time across the space. And so as private equity are very numbers oriented, there's no numbers to look at. So how have you seen that conversation go with your private equity partners? How have you helped them understand the value of the clinical piece? And then secondarily, how do you judge the clinical quality when you're looking at expansion and acquisition? And so, you know, those are the million dollar questions, right? And what, what I've done is to be able to identify the intersection between the goals of the, the people that live in the cells in the spreadsheet. So those are very objective and the goals of the people that live in emotions and feelings and the subjectivity. And what I found is that if everyone will take one step toward the other, that there is a shared mission and shared and alignment. And one can be the mirror of the other if we look hard enough and if we work hard enough at it. Case in point, unplanned discharges. Everyone dislikes unplanned discharges. You know, on the clinical side, no, we, none of us, you know, they're all our mothers, our family members. And when they run out into the night, it hurts our hearts. On the private equities, on the spreadsheet side, it, it's someone that we're not going to get the revenue from that person. Let's just be honest. I mean, that's what they're paid to manage, right? Mm -hmm. What does it, how's the revenue? How's the EBITDA? How's the census? And so when we look at improving the metric there, that number, it benefits both sides. And so what I've done in my years in this field is I look hard for the intersection points, the inflection points. Where can one inform the other? And when we take AMAs from 17% to 
you can be you can be sure that that impacts the bottom line even if we did have to squeeze some additional resources out and get a therapist to stay from 6 to 8 during the bewitching hours when we know AMAs happen or on weekends and so we're able to really find those points of intersections where both people um both people win cuz both sides can win so I think that's great examples there of, of helping people understand. I mean, they're the same mission at the same time, right? I always tell people, you know, if we don't have the money, we can't pay the salaries. But also, if we're lowering AMA rates is a great example that's impacting the bottom line, but it's obviously helping more people because we know that if people don't complete treatment, they're much more likely to return to use or have negative outcomes. And so we've got a clinical win, we've got a financial win and by working together. But taking that a step further, how how are you identifying that clinical quality? Like what does clinical quality mean to you and recovery ways? So what it means to us is first of all, obviously the unplanned discharges and not just the AMAs, but the people that we have to administratively discharge or the people that dip out, you know, the, the days left on the table. That's something that I've always looked very seriously at regardless of where I've worked. If there's approved days, and someone is leaving treatment, you know, even if it's treatment complete and you're leaving a couple of days on the table, to me, that's feedback. That's feedback about your program. And so looking carefully at length of stay at every single level of care, patient satisfaction surveys, we study those very carefully and we look at what the feedback is on those and then quickly make the necessary changes. Also, we do collect, we collect data from our occupational therapy departments and our recreational therapy departments. And so those are things that we are looking at on a monthly basis. We also look at program fidelity and we look at, are we delivering what we say we're going to deliver? At the end of every week, I get notification, how many groups were delivered by someone other than the person that was on the schedule. How many sessions were rescheduled? Those kinds of things. And so by really measuring our own performance and our own adherence to program fidelity, then that's how we can ensure that we're doing our job. And so you're not going to get any surprises on the back end with the documentation, with getting chart audits, those kinds of things. We're also part of the FORCE initiative with the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. And so we were one of the early adopters there. And so all of our data is provided to them. And we're, we got our first report in terms of, um, it's, it's mostly demographics, but we will be part of that. So again, in the absence of any other data, what we do is really we're rigorous in our own quality indicators and assessing our own performance. And how does that translate for your acquisitions? Because when you're talking about bringing in an owner, for example, from another facility, and you're talking about clinician-led facilities, different clinicians can have very rigid or, or specific um, philosophies around how care is delivered. So when you're looking at acquisition, are you kind of letting them run the show? Is there an integration with the recovery ways overarching clinical philosophy? And then if there's a conflict there, how is that managed? 
So we do have, there is an intersection in terms of the program fidelity piece. And we won't say, okay, Dr. Carderas, you know, in at Omega, you have to provide exactly the same services that we provide in Boise or in Spokane. Um, but there is the minimum requirements. All of our programs treat both mental health primary and substance use disorder co-occurring. And so as long as we are um, meeting what we believe are our minimum requirements from a payer program fidelity standpoint, then the brand is allowed to have their own um, input, their own flair, if you will, in terms of their curriculum and what they are providing. And then do you end up, do they keep their own name? Do you say, you know, XYZ program by Recovery Ways? How do you think about that from an overall brand standpoint? So it depends on the brand equity that's in the asset. And so some of our programs, you know, I've I'll pick on our Texas programs. We've let them alone. They are um, Omega Recovery and Stuart J. Nathan and Associates. There was a lot of brand equity in there. And they are part of, they're underbranded with the Recovery Ways family of programs. Um, in Idaho, we, we rebranded as Recovery Ways Idaho. And the decision was made just based on really the strength of the brand, how well the brand is has been accepted in the marketplace and is the strategy going forward going to take it in a direction where we would like to um, highlight different things about the program. So we we make the decisions based again on the strength of the current of the brand that we're acquiring. Mm, got it. And going back to something you said about going into different regions or markets, building the relationship with the payers, finding an acquisition or, or a spot to do a build. You mentioned, for example, you take Medicaid in Idaho, which you're not necessarily doing in some of your other markets. So that cost structure is different, right? Are you then having discussions with the payers or the communities, making a determination on how to provide those services at a cost structure that's profitable and then going in? Or are you going in and kind of figuring it out? How does that work out? So it's part of the due diligence process to understand the, the current cost structure and what the what the margin is. And that's those have been acquisitions. We've not done any de novos that are based on a Medicaid model. I can't see how that could make sense. We've thought about it in different markets, but we've not done that yet. That makes a lot of sense because I talk about that sometimes where I say, look, you can't just go into a market and do the same thing you were doing in, in another state because mm -hmm. the cost structures are different, reimbursement's different. Uh, it's a really good idea to research that market and build the model around what the market supports. But I like your point there. That is hard to do, right? It's very hard to do, especially if you haven't done it before. Whereas if you just acquire someone that's already there, they've already built the working model. So <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's your value of acquiring. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And right now we're looking at some joint ventures in, in some markets where um, they need additional clinical support and it's markets we would like to be in. We've not found anything to acquire. And um, to me, a de novo makes no sense. And so we're exploring some joint ventures, which we're super excited about. 
So it's kind of a new trend. It's really popular in the psych hospital space. There's a lot of joint mm-hmm. veterans going on these days. Any any insights or guidance that you can give there? Because we haven't really talked about that on the show before, and I'm not overly familiar with the joint venture structure. Uh, pros and cons from a very high level. So to me right now, and you know, we haven't finalized them. And so I can tell you in six months, I can give you a lot more of my lived experience in six months. But what I'm seeing now is that it goes back to that relationship and to be able to have that trust and to be able to, you know, it when you go into a joint venture with someone, I mean, you're talking the merging of two brands and there's got to be that alignment and that trust and that synergy in order to say, yes, I will take my brand. It's not like I'm acquiring you. I'm going to take my brand and your brand and we're going to partner up and we will be co-branded. I mean, that's a huge leap of faith and trust. And I don't know that that's anything that dollars and cents can really um, impact. Do you know what I mean? It, It doesn't really, you can get a smoke and deal with someone on a joint venture, but if if there isn't mutual respect for the brand, if they don't um, hold your brand in a high regard and vice versa, then that could be a disaster for both parties. That makes a lot of sense. I'm sure there's a lot of different pieces, you know, who's doing what, who's responsible for what, who's accountable for what. And then does it have to be, is there requirements around joint ventures at like a 50-50 share? Does that change based on the agreement? It changes based on the agreement. And from my understanding, each one of the, you know, obviously, you know, we're private equity backed. We have a model that, and those are the parameters in which I can work where they're comfortable with a joint venture and how much we need to own. Okay. That's interesting. I'll definitely be curious to follow up in six months and see how that's going. So we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, Anything that we didn't cover that you really want to talk about or or point out related to recovery ways or some of the work you've done? Say that the main thing that I really wanted to, the point I wanted to get across, and I know that we've talked a lot about increased acuity and the needs of the various organizations out there. You know, we know that adaptability is key. And, you know, as of, for an example, right now with all of the overdoses and suicides to be able to provide clinical care that supports a population who, you know, perhaps someone has lost a loved one to an overdose. And there are programs out there, training programs. We're participating in a research survey with the state of Utah to provide grief training to therapists to specifically deal with um, families that have lost a loved one to an overdose. We have a virtual support group for at no cost for someone that has lost a loved one to suicide. So being able to be a good, solid community partner and to offer these services is, is just very important to me as I look at myself as a professional and as a human being in the world at this point in time. Appreciate you sharing that. So if someone wanted to learn more, get in touch with you or get in touch with Recovery Ways, what would be the best way to do so? I can give you the information and, you know, we've got the sign up for the virtual support group and those kinds of things. But we're always happy to talk about any of these things that are going on in the world right now. 
All right. Well, if you want to share that with me, I'll be happy to add it to the show notes and we can put that in there for anyone checking out the podcast. Otherwise, I really appreciate the time and just fantastic information. I love it. It's, it's a very unique model that no one else is really doing in the space. So I appreciate you being willing to share. And I always believe in a rising tide raises all boats. So for all our listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.